0: Some say that time is a predator that stalks us all of our life. But I actually believe that time is a companion that goes with us on our journey through life and is a reminder to cherish every moment because it'll never come again. If you think I made that up, I didn't. That was actually a Star Trek quote by Malcolm McDowell. The only line from that movie I remember as a kid, but I remember thinking as a kid, That seems to make sense, and I might understand it someday. As we saw last week, Solomon's um, also referred to as the preacher throughout the book. His search led him everywhere but to contentment and meaning. He searched for contentment, and what he desired was always one step further out of his reach. He was trying to find value in a broken value system. He was searching for value and meaning by what he could own, what he could produce, and what people thought of him. In 117, he found that there's no end to the search for wisdom. In 2, verse 1, he realized pleasure is a poor goal. Verse 3, discovered drink doesn't satisfy. Verses 4 through 7, understood that success was empty and insatiable. Verse 8, learned that large amounts of gold and silver did not suffice to, to, uh, satisfy his desire. He had more success under the sun than any man alive, and yet was still empty with no contentment and satisfaction. And how tragic is that? By the end of chapter 2, he gives us a glimpse into what satisfies us, and, and he basically says, look, find God and enjoy your work. And if only he had stopped there. But he didn't. So we come to chapter three, where he's going to increase the tension a little more by giving a series of contrasts that begs a very important question for us. If everything is vanity or fleeting, and yet I have God, then what's the point? And it's the question that Solomon tackles in chapter three. So let's read through it, and then we'll dig in. Verse 1, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Sound this a little repetitious from the previous two chapters, and it's not the last time that, that this kind of um, uh, message will be given throughout uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. But there's only a few points in Ecclesiastes where this next verse comes in. In verse 14, it says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. So what Solomon says is that however we try to resolve the fact that evil exists and God is good and things live and things die and war happens and peace happens, we can't do it by saying that God isn't in control. In verse one, he states that there's a divine plan for the cycle of life. that there's something put in motion, that is part of the cycle of life. That God is the one who has made the divinely appointed time for everything in its due season. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, or a stalk of fireweed. There's a purpose for your birth, your death, and everything in between. God has appointed a time for everything. A day will come in God's sovereign plan where you will get that phone call telling you that your parents have passed. Your time will be to weep, but it won't last forever because there will also be a time when you'll have a kid or a grandkid or finally move into your dream home or, or change in careers into something you love doing or retire, and then you will laugh and celebrate again, and the cycle of life continues. The preacher said life is going to be like this, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. You have children, and you'll laugh, and then those children will make you cry. That's the way it is. There are times of happiness and times of pain. This is the divine cycle. If you don't die from something unexpected, there will be a day when you'll weep over a diagnosis, or there will be a day that you celebrate a victory over a diagnosis. All these things are are ordained. We cannot know why or what life will bring. So what's the point? There's a time when you destroy something by throwing stones at it. And then there's a time when you gather stones to build something. A time when you put a new roof on a house and a time when you re-roof that same house. There'll be a time for you to embrace. There will be times that you don't want to embrace anyone. There will come a time when you will be full of hope and want to search and explore new ventures. And there will be a time when you will be hopeless and want to give up. The things you own will be useful for a while. You'll want to keep them, hold on to them. You've worked to invest money into purchasing them, and then you make the trip to thrifters. There will be a time for agony. Your heart will hurt so bad you'll want to tear your clothes. And then there will be a time to wipe away the tears because the pain is gone, and there's new hope dawning. There will be a time for love. There will also be a time for rejection. This is the cycle of life. So what's the point? That's just the truth of life under the sun. It's a reality that we don't like to accept. We like to think, well, if I come to Jesus, those things will go away and life just gets good. All these are a natural part of life. And when we realize this, it leads us to a very human response that we see in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? What's all this for? Why should I work so hard when it's all going to be destroyed? Why get married when you just end up fighting and hurting one another? We why have kids and deal with stress and 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 all the unknowns and 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 the inconveniences that they are, especially in their younger years, and or perhaps maybe even having a wayward child. What is the point of having kids? Why go on living when I know at some point I'm going to wish I was I was dead? See, the preacher is essentially playing the devil's advocate here. He's saying what all of us think, and sometimes we wish we could say. What's the point of anything? Everything gets undone and there's nothing we can do about it. And when we have this perspective, it really doesn't take long to get cynical. I mean, do you ever feel like that? Feel like, man, I would love to see the positives, but I feel like it's just negative. The world we live in is negative and everything ends. It's interesting what he says in verse 10 and 11, though. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, or the preacher, tells us that there's no hope unless we turn to God. Now we have a bigger problem though because we have turned to God and we find out that he's given us this life of vanity and toil. He's appointed that we live in this world of meaninglessness. How do you live in a world that's out of your control and constantly subject to change? How do we live with a God who doesn't always make sense? God put eternity into the heart of every person and in every person is the question of why. Why do we ask those questions though? Why does the why actually matter to us? Why does meaninglessness bother us in the first place? Why does suffering bother us? Do we think ants or bees are worried about the meaninglessness of their work? Why for us does that seem to bother us? Why ask the question, what is the purpose of living if we're meant to just toil? And then die. And here's why. Because he set eternity into our hearts. That's why it never makes sense. That's why there's always something that seems to be wrong with the brokenness of the world. That's why we want value. That's why we seek after purpose and, and meaningfulness. It's because he's given us, he has put eternity in us to drive us beyond what this life actually offers. Example would be my frustration with temporary things not functioning like eternal things. Dishwasher's breaking. Joints in pain. Brake pads wearing out. Roofs needing replaced. Chains not staying sharp. You get the idea. See, we intrinsically know that there has to be order and purpose to life. So even though we can't, we we can recognize God's work or purpose in some things, we squint our eyes or, or we, we, we search and try to figure out all the things that we actually can't see. We ask the questions like, why was I born this way? Why did I get laid off? Why did you take my friend or my family member? Why am I missing out on this blessing? Why can't I seem to achieve this? Why can't I do this? Why does this always seem to be this case in my life? And why does it always seem to pour when it rains and I look at others and it's not that way? In fact, Asaph would say in Psalm 73 that, that he was perplexed at this dynamic when he said, God, why is it that the evil, the wicked, prosper? And those who are following you actually seem to go hungry. And he said it wasn't until he went into the Lord's house did he realize their outcome and it made sense. That there's something beyond this life. And it's because this life isn't meant to be eternal. In fact, Solomon would say it's vain. We often have a negative idea of vanity. We look at it with a negative connotation, but really that's the wrong way to look at it. Vanity is just what it is. Beauty is vain. Beauty is not wrong. Beauty is just vain. It is what it is. It's not the deeper meaning of this life. Success is just vanity. It's not wrong. It's just not the deeper purpose of life. All is vanity. All of our work, all of our toil, is vanity because it is what it is. It is chasing the wind. We live in this vapor of a life. The the most successful people in our history will one day be forgotten. With the exception of biblical characters and stories, I think. It's all vain. As one author says, there is a deep-seated Compulsive drive to transcend our morality by knowing the meaning and destiny of life. There's this deep-seated drive to transcend, to to hack life, to figure life out. If we could just know the meaning and destiny of our life, but it's frustrating because God throws a wrench into that, doesn't He? He does things sometimes when we go, "Well, I didn't see that coming," for the good or the bad. We want to see future outcome of difficult circumstances and say, ah, that's why you let this happen. But we want that before we walk through the circumstance. And the problem is that we're trying to find meaning in the things that have no meaning. We get frustrated with God and question his care for us when we can't find answers to or meaning in the hardships to this life we face under the sun. Why am I going through this? And how many times have you gone through trials in your own life that you said, Lord, what is the purpose? God, where are you? Why are you doing this? And when you look back, hindsight's twenty twenty. you say, oh, that's why. We want to look ahead and say, I will go through that, and I will trust you if you tell me why ahead of time. Parents have kids that want to do that. They, don't, they will only want to obey after they understand Why? Sometimes, actually, you can't tell them why. Sometimes they need to trust you that they would walk forward in that. We want to often walk by sight and not by faith. And the question we have to ask ourselves, and we've talked about this before, is when will we stop putting God on trial? Either he is good or he is not. Because a sovereign God is not one to be reckoned with if he is not good. We have plenty of good things that take place in this life that we don't need answers to. We accept them because God is good. Praise Jesus. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Thank you, Lord. Then when we come through trials, when we come through tension and discomfort, we say, God, where are you? Either God is for us or he is not. He does not play games with us. He is not absent from our lives. That when we look at the trials we go, uh, go through and the sufferings we'll face in this broken world, we have to understand that God does not cease to be involved intricately in our lives and that he will also use that for our good, even painful circumstances. And I would say especially in painful circumstances. This is because eternity is set into our hearts our hearts. It'll never seem right when things die, or people suffer, or evil prevails, or the chiefs win. It will never, ever seem right. I'm just kidding. I knew our Chiefs fans are gone this, gone this week. <laughs> but the reality is those things will never sit well with us. Things that that aren't eternal, that don't last, relationships broken will never sit well with us as a gift from God to keep our eyes beyond what these relationships can be. It, It projects us into searching for eternity, searching for the things that do last. It is God's gift to us that the things of this life are not eternal, that he would number our days so that we can enter into that eternal rest. We must not expect things that are a vapor to function eternally. This is the whole conflict. And we're dead set on finding meaning from the things in this life and not from God himself. And this is what Solomon was finally understanding. After he had all this success, sometimes there are people in this life who want to find value and meaning and and be be a person of value by the things they own, what they produce, and how many people they can get approval from. And there are those that will search their entire lives to get even a glimpse of one of those. And then there are people like Solomon who actually achieve owning large amounts of, of wealth and producing a lot and gaining the people's approval. There are those who can succeed and fail in both of those. The problem with those is those don't change the meaning and the value of who we are to God. And Solomon was just one who found success in that area. So he gets to verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And we're thinking like, all right, Solomon, we've heard this before. And we're gonna hear it a lot more through this book. So, so is that the purpose of life? Is that the meaning? How do we find meaning in work, in eating and drinking and taking pleasure in all of our toil? Is this the ultimate joy that we should be pursuing? Is this the ultimate meaning in life? No, because actually while it's God's gift to man, he still says even in the success of those, it's vanity. See, Solomon tells us not to get cynical and unhappy. Instead, we should do good in our lifetime. We should be pursuing good. In the short life, we, we should, we, we have to trust God and do good. The, 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 uh, shift is not to become the, the, the people who don't do anything, who don't succeed, who don't produce, who don't build relationships, who don't invest in things that are temporary. We just have to have a sober perspective of what they are because they too will fade. All the wealth we want to build up, all the land we want to own, all the the houses we want to build, all the wisdom we want to have, it will be gone. All the wisdom. I I was just telling someone yesterday, we were talking about age, I'm like, yeah, I turned 40 this year, and my kids make fun of me for it. It doesn't bother me at all getting older. I have no problem getting older. The problem is, I want to be wise as I grow older. I can't do anything about getting older. What I can do is growing in wisdom, and even yet... If I have another 40 years to continue growing in wisdom, not much of that wisdom will be passed along. There will be some that will be passed along, but all the things will not. So even most of that will die with me. So what's the point? See, even that is vanity. But in verse 13, he says that life doesn't actually have to be meaningless. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 630 through 634, paraphrasing, since God is sovereign and overall in 633, here's what he says in 634 don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How much of our lives do we spend living in tomorrow? Living in the future, living in the worries and the trouble of tomorrow. And we miss out on enjoying today, trusting God and being faithful to today, enjoying what is set before us today. So today, I need to look at what's before me, not take troubles from tomorrow. Today, I wake up and I said, Lord, what's the work you have before me to do? Who, what people have you given me to love What can I learn about you today? What trials can I endure through today? Because tomorrow I might get that call. Tomorrow I might get hit. Tomorrow I might croak over and die. It's just the reality of life. And we're always surprised when people my age die. Because it doesn't seem right it seems like we should live old age, but yet this is the cycle of life that every day is numbered, and we live as though we're guaranteed a long life. So we, we live into the future, and we miss out on the presence of today, and we do everything we can. We live for today to avoid the future, how much money is invested in looking young as long as you can. How much money and time are invested in the future selves when we miss out on who God wants us to be today? And we get to that place and we realize in an instant, you guys remember the 2008 crash? All the suicides that took place during that time from all those that were retired and lost everything they'd worked their entire lives for. Gone. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. So Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. They'll have their own troubles. Today, be faithful. Someday, I might not know where my food is coming from or how I'm going to pay for medical bills or fix my cars. Maybe there's going to be a moose that jumps out in front of me on my motorcycle that I'm trying to talk Audrey to Audrey let me get again. Who knows? But there are endless potential problems in the circle of life. And these are what creates the conflict. But today, I'm doing okay. Because if and when those days come, God says he's aware of those needs. So how do I live for today? I think Paul tells us very clearly in Philippians 4, 8, 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Suffering was not foreign to Paul. Circumstances were not, uh, dire circumstances were not foreign to Paul. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to enjoy spending time with you this morning. Maybe take a nap this afternoon, because there's nothing better than a Sunday afternoon nap. And then enjoy this evening with friends or my family, on Friday, we have my son's 10th birthday. We're looking forward to celebrating that if we get to that point. But I refuse to let what I can't control or foresee destroy what I can enjoy today. And I know that I can enjoy the Lord today. I know that I can enjoy God's people that he put in front of me today. I know that I can enjoy my family today. I know that I can be a blessing to someone today. I know that I can learn something about Jesus today. I don't know if that's true tomorrow, but I know it is right now. So then we come to what is perhaps the crux of this entire book. And Dale can correct me next week, and that's okay. But that is to rest in the sovereignty of God. So he says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. See, God's sovereignty, we love when it blesses us. We hate when it feels like it's putting pressure on us. It's meant to comfort us, not worry us. It's meant to lead us into his eternal presence. But if God is on trial in our hearts, if we're still judging him based off of whether he's good or not, based off of how our circumstances turn out, then he will always be a worry to us. See, whenever anything unforeseen happens and the circumstances of life devastate us, there's only one thing I actually have to know, that God is in control. And you know what? When good things happen, we all, if we're sober-minded, we all realize like, we don't actually deserve that. That was totally God's grace. When bad things happen, we feel like we don't deserve them. We don't understand why. We don't understand why God would allow it. But one thing I have to know, and if I can't be sure of this one thing, there is zero comfort in the faith that I stand up here proclaiming. I have to know that He's in charge. I have to know that in the face of what seems to be meaningless, His plan is good. I have no problem with God allowing things that do not fit my framework because I understand I'm very limited in my sight. I have, I, I, I have a, a high gift of discernment. I don't have a wisdom. That's my wife's job. I have discernment. And I normally foresee things starting to put, be put into place and things like that beginning to happen. I don't know why. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's a curse. But one thing I do know is that I have been dead wrong about things before. Things that I've been discerning the Lord doing, been dead wrong about it. So I'm aware enough to know that I'm limited in my sight. So I have no problem allowing God to do things that don't fit into my framework. But I will not live in a world that is sovereignly run by evil. If God is that weak, then I will forego my hope of salvation. Because for me, God has set in place a cycle of life that is meant to not fulfill my deepest Hedonistic desires outside of my eyes gazing on him, outside of eternity. And it is God's gift to me that things break, that things wear out, that people perish, that relationships break. It's not God's ultimate desire, and that's why we have eternity, but it is a gift to us to keep our eyes focused on what is eternal. So God is sovereign. He is in control. And what God allows to be meaningless in life under the sun is designed to draw us into finding meaning in life above the sun. Because Solomon tells us in verse 14 that everything God does will remain forever. He's not short-sighted and wondering how it'll work out. He also says that there's nothing to take away from what God has done. There's no delete key on God's decree. Thank you for a midnight uh, study session with Audra last night where I began putting rhyming phrases together and not realizing it and then laughing about it. There's no no delete key on God's decree. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. It's perfect. And the goal is that men would fear him God isn't trying to produce cynicism, but he's trying to produce a reverent fear. He wants to create trust in you and I. The changing of seasons or appointed times is the circle of life. You and I are alive here today because of those divinely appointed times. Divinely appointed times with our parents, divinely appointed times in where we grew up, what, where, what decisions we made, the paths God laid out before us, all this, we are here because of these divinely appointed times. We have the fall when the colors of the leaves begin to change as, as they prepare for winter. We have the spring, not the false ones. But everything begins to come back to life as it prepares for a new season or an appointed time. And we love the appointed time of spring and summer we don't love the appointed time of winter necessarily. Everything has a time, a divine, suitable moment. Life is constantly changing. The more things change, the more they prove that they are actually the same, that the cycles stay the same. Children grow and people move away and things change. And then it begins all over again. And it's, it's the circle of life and it moves us all. So there are really only two choices, we can ebb and flow with the highs and lows, or we can fight the tide of those times and be swept away in discouragement, which really isn't a pleasant way of living. Change will happen because this life is not eternal. There is no way to stop change any more than we can stop the time from clicking <clears throat> or ticking. So it's either an enemy or a, or a, a friend. We have to view the seasons of change in light of God's love and in light of his sovereignty, not man's attempts to control. And we, being God's people, we must adapt when he moves pieces and lays new plans out, even if they're unexpected or uncomfortable. Our goal cannot be to remain the same. These pastoral transitions that we've been talking about within Church on the Rock, new pastors stepping into new roles, which gives way for new ways of doing things and new growth and new harvest to raise up new change and bring about new things that the Lord is wanting to do. Because we know if we were honest with ourselves that, that comfort is not good for us. It was never good with Israel and it's not good with us that we need. If we're to grow, we need to be uncomfortable. Comfort is good for rest. It's good for seasons of rest and healing. But we grow in the times of change, in the times under tension. Change is real. It keeps us uncomfortable, which is when we grow. But change also allows us to see God's hand in action. In chapter four, which we didn't get into today, we're told that friendship is key to the journey of this life. We often hear it talked about in <clears throat> at marriage ceremonies that the that the that the strands woven together are better than one alone. Proverbs has much to say about isolation. We aren't to isolate ourselves in discouragement to hide from the realities of this life because they will follow and they will catch up. We're to embrace one another, engage one another, encourage one another or as the New Testament says Love, uh, encourage one another, and spur one another on to love and good works. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. The ever changing seasons under the sun are meant to direct our gaze on the one who exists above it. And yet, that one who exists above it is the only one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13 says. It directs our hearts to a God full of mercy and compassion, a God full of comfort and care, of redemption and reconciliation, the eternal God who makes everything beautiful in its time, even death. These seasons and appointed times we encounter under the sun are <clears throat> God the potter carefully molding eternity into us, the jars of clay, And if we embrace this reality with faith, then with every turn of the wheel and shaping from his hand, there's an opportunity to find meaning and comfort in this life. So I don't want us to be discouraged. The point of Ecclesiastes is to not discourage. In fact, it is really discouraging if our eyes are fixed on finding meaning in the things of this life. But if we look and accept the reality that it's just vanity, it's neither good or bad. It's just vanity. Beauty, <clears throat> beauty is good, but beauty isn't what God values the most in eternity. It's not what He He knows the beauty of us are gonna grow old and we're gonna go bald and and lose our hearing and lose our sight and and not be strong or not be not be as capable anymore. And that is okay. Beauty is not eternal. It's beautiful in its own way, but it's not eternal. So we look at the good things that we value in life and the the negative things that we value in life and say the good in both of those is that neither are eternal, that there is a life that drives our hearts in the presence of Jesus, who he says, this is where everything will remain the same. So without the gift of meaninglessness, I would not desire eternity. I'd be too busy finding meaning of the things of this world. And it is a miserable way to live when all you do is try to go from one thing to another like Solomon did, trying to find meaning in all these different things, my reputation, my position, my possessions, all these things. And when we say, Lord, I'll take what you give, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and that's Solomon's point. He's like, man, he reigns on the just and he reigns on the unjust. Because it's all temporary. God will judge the unrighteous and he will judge the righteous. And for me, I want to know Jesus. I want to have my eyes gazed on that person who who gives me that perfect peace that surpasses the realities of this life. And that is the purpose of what Solomon's writing in chapter three. So we have to decide what we're going to do with that, what we're going to let go of in this life, what we're going to actually focus on, and what we're actually going to live for. So would you guys stand as we close with a very powerful song. The lyrics are deep. They elicit thoughts. They elicit emotions that we have to come to grips with in this life where we cannot control the change that happens. So let us contemplate. Let us worship. Let us enjoy the moment we have together in Christ.